Good morning. It is good to see everyone this morning, and I appreciate the fact that when you saw me walk up here, there wasn't a long line exiting the doors uh, as we got started. Um, it is a pleasure to be up here in front of you this morning. Um, it is one of those things that um, it would not be truthful if I said I wasn't nervous, a little nervous. But for those of y'all who were here about this time last year when I was given this opportunity, you might remember that I was wearing a tie. <laughs> and part of the reason I was wearing a tie then is because as a lawyer, that's sort of my comfort zone. I put a tie on and it kind of gives me comfort that uh, it's a shield, if you will. It puts up this magic block that will protect me against anything that's coming out there towards me, right? And so it was something that I did as comfort. But you also noticed this morning that I don't have a tie on. And the reason I don't have a tie on is that when Todd asked me to talk this morning, the wave of nervousness that I hit me last year didn't hit me this year. And part of the reason it didn't hit me this year is because, one, I had done it before, but two, when I look out, not only did I see my family, I see my church family. And so this is just an opportunity for us to sit there and get to study God's Word together and I consider it a blessing. So while I do have a few nerves and I ask for your grace, it is something that I'm very happy to be here this morning and to share God's word with you. So, if you will, will you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to be in God's word, verses 11 through 21. Starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For, I, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So just a few verses here, nothing, not a whole lot really in these verses, right? I think that we ought to be able to get through this maybe by two or three this afternoon, so I'm kidding. I'm, I'll watch the clock, I promise. 
If you'll join me in prayer, then we'll get into God's Word. Most dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We are thankful, dear Lord, for this opportunity, an opportunity that not everyone is afforded, an opportunity to come together freely to worship you and to study your word. Dear Lord, we're thankful for this message. We're thankful for the word that you provided to us. But most of all, dear Lord, we're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for the grace of the gift of your Son, freely given, our Savior, your Son, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so as many of y'all know, when we started the started studying the book of Galatians a few weeks ago, Todd told us that one of the things that's going on here, and part of the reason that, that Paul is writing this letter, is that the Gentiles in Galatia are receiving something more than the gospel that Paul taught them. In fact, they're hearing that not only should you believe in Christ Jesus, but it's Christ plus. And in this case, it's Christ plus the law. And that's what's been reported back to Paul. And so Paul is in the process of clarifying and correcting that false teaching. And that's part of his, that's part of how this letter starts off with. And in fact, the first verses up through this point in time, Paul outlines his defense. And if you'll recall, he started off with, because in addition to the fact that there is Christ plus something, Christ plus the law, apparently Paul himself was being attacked. And we know this because in verse, in chapter 1, Paul is being accused of doing what he's doing and preaching the gospel that he's been preaching because it was to please men. Right? That's what, we, that's what we were taught. So Paul responds to that. And what we're going to study this morning is the end of his initial argument about himself as far as Galatians go. But he started off with, just as a brief recap about what he did, after he told them that this isn't about myself, what did he do? He outlined how he actually received the gospel. Right? He said that, before, I was one of the chief persecutors <clears throat> of the church. I was one of the ones that was going out there, and I was attacking the church. I was a um, Jew who not only observed the law, but I was more advanced than others who were my age. I vigorously opposed the church and attacked the church. But what happened to Paul? Everybody remembers, right? The road to Damascus. Paul reminds them, reminds the Galatians that I didn't receive this gospel through other men. This was divinely inspired. Jesus himself appeared to Paul on his road to Damascus. This isn't about Paul, and he's pointing that out to them. That's the first thing that he says to them. And then he goes, you know, not only did this not come from men, but after I received the word from God, the gospel, what did he do? Did he run and go immediately to the church in Jerusalem, to the other apostles, and sit there and confirm what he had seen on the road? No. He isolates himself. He goes spends three years in Arabia. Right? And he reminds them of that. I went and went, spent three years in Arabia. Only after that time 
does Paul actually go then to Peter? And so what does he do when he goes to Peter in, in his, as, as Todd was teaching you? He goes to Peter, and, he, and how long does he spend with Peter? Fifteen days. That's it. Fifteen days. And he only sees Peter, and he also sees James, and that's it. Those are the only two. And at that time, he leaves. And it, how long is it then before he comes back? And again, this is all, remember, in response to him being attacked by the fact that he was only spreading the gospel that he was spreading because he was trying to please men. If that were the case, and that's why he's pointing these things out, those are not the actions you take. You don't go put yourself in isolation for three years. You don't privately have conversations with Peter, who is one, and Paul even says it in, in the letter, later on in the letter, one of the pillars of the church. No, if you're doing it to please men, you're going to sit there and go out and let everybody know that's what's happening. But he doesn't do that. He then leaves, and for 14 years, he does not return back to Jerusalem. If he wanted to do it to please men, especially if he wanted to do it to please the men that apparently have gone to Galatia and are spreading this false message, one of the things he might have done is would have gone to the churches in Judea itself. But he didn't do that. In fact, he says, did the church in Judea know me? Well, they didn't know him in the sense of knew what he looked like, but he definitely had a reputation. Did he not? And that reputation was one of who persecuted the church, but who had now turned. The reputation that Paul now had to the church in Judea was he had now turned. He had now turned from persecuting to spreading the gospel. And what was the response of the church in Judea? They rejoiced. They rejoiced in that fact. Right? They were not upset with Paul. They weren't the ones that, at that time, they were not saying that Paul was spreading the false gospel and only doing it for personal gain or personal growth in his reputation. He comes back, and this is what we studied last week, he comes back to Jerusalem after being out proselytizing amongst the Gentiles for 14 years. He comes back after 14 years. And why does he come back? Because he has a revelation to come back. And because, and, and this is what, what Todd was talking about last week, he comes back and he meets privately with the, with the council in Jerusalem. Why does he meet privately with the council in Jerusalem? Because he wants confirmation. He wants to discuss the gospel with the council in Jerusalem because he didn't want his message and what he had been doing to be one that had been done in vain, as he puts it. So he comes back and privately meets with them. And what happens when he meets with them? Is his gospel confirmed? Is what Paul is saying confirmed? Yes. Why was there a need to do that? Because apparently at that time, there were, I think as the terms put, there were spies that had infiltrated amongst the ranks and who were teaching the very thing that Paul is trying to address with the Galatians. They were teaching that, yes, you should believe in Christ, but if you really want to be saved, you have to also observe the law. Paul says... We fought against it. We stood our ground. We didn't give an inch. And at the end of the day, 
Was their gospel confirmed? Absolutely. They left. If you'll go back and look in Galatians, it says in verse 7, But on the contrary, when they really saw that I had been entrusted to carry the gospel, but I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectively worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, which is Peter, and John, who were reputed to be the pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So Paul is setting up his argument. You know, as an attorney, I sit there and and I love reading Paul because there's a logic to his argument and there's a logic to his letters. And one of the things that you want to do is say, okay, so this is what you're hearing. It's wrong. And this is what they're telling, telling you about me. And that's wrong. And let me explain to you how it's wrong. And he goes through the process. And throughout the whole letter of Galatia, what we're, Galatians, what we're going to find out is he's using this part to sit there and talk about himself and his own experience and how he came to the gospel and what the gospel is and why, it, why, it is, why he is correct in what the gospel is. And then he's going to move on and he's going to even use their own law and their own history to justify the gospel now. But we're not there yet. He's still in his argument, right? Divinely inspired is how I got my gospel. Not, more, not once, but twice have I gone back to the pillars of the church, if you will, and it has been confirmed. As Todd said last week, what was it? The mission was different. The mission of Peter and the mission of Paul was different. The message was not. The message of Peter and Paul are absolutely consistent with one another. But he goes on. Verse 11. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What's the significance here of Peter being the one that Paul is saying he opposed to? We just said it, right? Peter is a pillar, considered a pillar. Now, Paul has already said, look, I know y'all think of Peter. Essentially, Paul has said this. This is Matt Wade's interpretation. I know y'all think of Peter as being this pillar, and he has this great reputation. I get it, but we're all men under, the, under God, right? You may look at him that way, but we're all just men under God. We're all on this deal equal. You may look at him that way. So, but it is, Pete Paul recognizes the fact that it is significant to them if he says, now, Peter, I opposed Peter. That's going to have a significant impact on the audience. This letter's being written to the Galatians, and imagine, if you will, they're reading this letter, and then the very next thing that they're reading as they're going along, someone like me is standing up there in front of you and say, hey, let me tell you what Paul has to say. And they say, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I think there would have been a lot of jaws dropping in the audience. 
I think they would have said, really? You, Paul, opposed Peter? And then Paul goes on to explain why he opposed Peter. For prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. (laughs) There's so much in that, right? The party of the circumcision, that... In the New American Standard, that's how they put that. The party of the circumcision. It, what an, I think really what an apt description. When we were in Acts and studying Acts, you remember that there is a time when there is what's called the council at Jerusalem, when they all get together, and the question is posed of whether or not it is just Christ or Christ but the law, right? In Acts 15, that's what happened. Is there something more than just Christ? That question is posed among the original founders of the church. And they come to the conclusion, and we'll talk about the conclusion here in a minute. But the point being that up until that time, and perhaps even afterwards though, there were those who were saying that they were part of the Christian church, but that you also had to be circumcised. Why would you have to be circumcised? Because that was part of the law. Remember? That was going to be the sign of the covenant. And so that's why you had to be circumcised. You had to do something in obedience to the law plus Christ in order to truly be saved. That's why they're called the party of the circumcision. You also remember that Todd talked to us about when it says that the men from James came. What does that mean? Certain men from James came. Well, if you remember Todd kind of described James, that he said, imagine James sort of being the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Remember that's how he described him? So what the point being is that the men from James, this party of the circumcision, comes to Antioch. And when they come to Antioch, Peter, who had been eating with the Gentiles up to that point in time, starts backing off. It's kind of hard to tell exactly how Peter does this. Does he do it, you know, abruptly and immediately stop eating with the Gentiles? Or is it something that's more subtle? Something because some folks came in of importance that he started drifting away from the Gentiles. I think that that's probably, in my mind, that's what I envision, that it's more of a subtle thing that's going on. Now think about that too with Peter. Why is it so significant that Peter was eating with the Gentiles and then all of a sudden stopped? There's a lot of reasons, but what did we learn in Acts about who Peter was and what he had done. Do we not remember the vision that God clearly gave him before he went to see Cornelius? Right? And what was that vision? The vision told him that there is nothing that God... There was no more food restrictions on Peter. He could go eat with the Gentiles. That was part of the vision. Remember, Peter was confused about this. When it was said, these you can eat, no, Lord, I've never done that. He's like, what I've cleansed, you don't need to worry about. You can do it. He goes to Cornelius, Cornelius, and at that point in time, he sees and he witnesses 
something that was amazing to Peter and amazing to the other Christian Jews, and that was the Holy Spirit coming down and indwelling Gentiles. It was such an amazing thing that we actually have two chapters about the exact same thing. Chapters 10 and 11 in Acts. Because he goes back and reports it to the other Jews, right? He goes back and reports it, and that is a hugely, hugely significant event. And I tell you, it plays a significant role in what we're going to study this morning. It plays a very significant role in what we're talking about this morning. So when Peter goes to Antioch, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, if I'm trying, and this is what I did, maybe it's just me. I always try to sit there and go, okay, how, when, when did all this occur? And for me, I'm pretty, I, I think I'm comfortable with the idea that this episode here where Paul confronts Peter is before the Acts 15 council in Jerusalem. And I'll tell you why here in a minute. So it's between, after he's already gone to Cornelius, because that clearly had to be after then because he was eating with the Gentiles. We're told he's eating with the Gentiles. Paul reminds us of that. And Paul's saying that's a good thing. He's eating with the Gentiles. But then all of a sudden these men show up and they act differently. Does that remind you of anything in your life? Have you ever been around a group of people where there's one group and you're pretty comfortable with everything else and then someone else walks in the room and all of a sudden, that's never happened to me. I've never acted differently at all when there's another group that's come into the room, right? Of course it is. I usually, you know, sometimes, and, and both my daughters are in the audience, so it's, I'm going to have a harder time telling some of the stories I want to tell because I'll probably have to pay for it later. But sometimes you see them with friends. We all do this with friends. There are certain friends that they come in, and all of a sudden you act a little bit differently. All of a sudden you're a little more kind of on your P's and Q's, right? I'm sure that all of us act exact, and, and, and Todd's going to end up listening to this, right? And I'm sure that all of us act exactly the same way around Todd as we do around our flesh and blood brothers or sisters, right? He would want us to, there's no doubt. But sometimes it's hard for us not to imagine and put him in the place of being our pastor. And that's okay. But the point here is that when these men came in to Antioch and they showed up, all of a sudden something flipped in Peter's brain. He's like, ooh, I know who these guys are. These guys are from James, his church, or from James. These guys are significant in Peter's mind. And so Peter starts acting differently. And Paul calls him out on it. Let's read some more. For prior to the coming, verse 12, prior to the coming of certain men from James, who used to eat with the Gentiles, but they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews... Join him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. You know, that had to hurt Paul, that Barnabas did the same thing. Because remember, Barnabas is the one 
who came and was Paul's defender, right? He's the one that defended what Paul was doing, acted as the mediator, if you will. I think the title of, of uh, Todd's sermon was Be Like Barnabas. So that had to hurt, but the point is, is that Peter there at Antioch, because of who Peter is, because he is a leader, because his actions do matter, he did something and it affected others. It brought others into the same hypocrisy of Peter. That's a big deal. So if you were a Gentile and you had heard the gospel proclaimed to you of Christ alone from Paul, and you had heard from Paul probably himself talking about Peter, you had probably heard from Paul talking about how Peter had gone to Cornelius, about how the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit when Peter went to Cornelius, and then Peter himself shows up in Antioch at your church. And he's with you. He's dining with you. He's having fellowship with you. And you know that's significant because there were definitely Jews in Galatia and they had nothing to do with you prior to then. But Peter's different. He comes and he starts eating with you. He's enjoying fellowship with one of you. You are talking about Christ. You are talking about the gospel. And then all of a sudden these other men in suits show up. It's always guys in suits, right? They're always the... I mean, I wear a suit all the time. I'm always, if I go into a council, in a city council meeting, and I show up in a suit, I'm always the bad guy. There's the guy in the suit. Something must, bad must be going on because the guy in the suit showed up. Well, the guys in the suits show up. I shouldn't say that, but the guys in the suits show up, and all of a sudden, Peter's looking at him going, ooh, yeah. I remember those people. Hmm. He goes and eats with the Gentiles. The guys in suits go, what are you doing? Have they been circumcised? Are they following the law? You're eating with them? And he starts slowly standing aloof, breaking away. And because Peter's doing that as the leader, he's drawing others with him, right? He's drawing others that are going to follow him as well and join him in the hypocrisy. So Paul confronts that including Barnabas, is carried away by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, Paul is witnessing this, and not only does he... Why I think it probably happened subtly is because finally the question probably came up. Why aren't you eating with the Gentiles anymore? The question came up. And Paul heard the answer, and the answer wasn't straightforward. The message wasn't clear. Everything that he had been up to that point in time, remember, when he had previously gone to Jerusalem and come back, remember, different missions, same message. Now the message that, that Paul is hearing isn't straightforward. And so he confronts him about the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, 
How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's kind of a pretty good slap right in the face. It's like, who do you think you are? You were eating with the Gentiles before. You did that. I saw that. I witnessed that. The Gentiles saw you do that. Everybody saw you do that. Now, you're not doing it anymore. And you're saying, at least by your actions, if not by your words as well, you're saying that the Jews need, the Gentiles need to become like Jews in order to have that fellowship. Yet you were a Jew and you were having fellowship with the Gentiles. That makes no sense. How can you possibly sit there and act that way? And then he goes on. And I want you to take careful note of the pronouns that he uses. Paul starts out with you. You who are a Jew, being a Jew, live like the, Gent live like the Gentiles, eating what you want, And with Gentiles, and not like the Jews, how is it that you can compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then see what Paul does. We. It's a great thing to do in an argument. It's a great thing to do. You, and then, if I think I'm attacking you a whole lot, guess what? I'm going to talk to you about what we have in common. All right? I'm going to remind you of who we, me and you, are. Right? So he goes, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Okay, let's think about that for a minute. <laughs> There's so much in, in that there. But, right, he says we are Jews by nature. What does that mean? We were born Jews. We are Jews. Me and you are Jews by nature. That's how we are and not Gentile sinners like the Gentiles. What does he mean by sinners like the Gentiles? Well, if you were a Jew and you were anybody who wasn't a Jew would have been considered a heathen or a sinner, right? And that's what he's saying. Sinners like the Gentiles. They don't have the law. We growing up as Jews, we, we had the law. Everybody who didn't have the law were sinners. So we're not like those Gentile sinners. We're Jews by nature. Then he goes on. Nevertheless, nevertheless being Jews by nature and not sinners like the Gentiles, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Oh my. We're Jews by nature, not like those Gentile sinners, yet we, me and you, Peter, we've been there. We've received the Holy Spirit. We know now. We know you cannot be justified by works in the law. It is only through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you think this was an important thing when Paul wrote this? Let's see. He says, not justified by the works of the law, not by the works of the law, 
Works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Through works of the law, no flesh will be Three times. He says it in the same verse. What does he also say three times in the same verse? Faith in Christ Jesus. Believed in Christ Jesus. Justified by faith in Christ Jesus. You think he's making a point? You think this is it? You know, I didn't get an outline in time for y'all to have in there. But if it was, if I would have titled the outline, it would have been Justification Through Christ Alone. Of course, I think that's probably the title for the whole letter of Galatians. But in that verse right there, he says it. You and I know, Peter, you and I have accepted the fact, believe it, we've accepted that gift, and that gift is Christ, faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's nothing that we could have done under the law that would have justified us before God. We could not do it. You know that, I know that. That's why it's so important what Christ did and who Christ is. It's by faith in Christ alone. And not by works of the law. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ as the Son of God, the free gift that God gave. And not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Then verse 17, but if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Absolutely not, right? Ah, I got about five heads jump up right when I did that. <laughs> Absolutely not. What is he saying here? What was the argument that was made? Well, these people who were saying that it had to be Christ plus the law, they were saying if it wasn't Christ but the law, then we would be, and if you can only be justified through Christ alone, then it's a recognition that before Christ, you were a sinner just like the Gentiles. See, they still had the mistaken belief that the law could have brought justification. And because they still thought that the law could still have just bring justification, if Christ is the one who comes through where you can be justified only through Christ, then if that's the way you did it, then that meant that those of us who had the law before really were sinners. That means that Christ increased the number of sinners. No! How silly that is, right? Did Christ make them sinners because He came? No, they were already sinners. They didn't think of themselves that way. They thought that they could be justified through the law. That's the problem. You will see as we go on in Galatians that Paul explains the purpose of the law. Todd has already told us the purpose of the law. He's explained it to us. The purpose of the law, the reason it was given, was to show them, show us, how far we are from 
being righteous before God. It was to expose us to our sin. It was to expose us that we can't do it ourselves. Jump with me over to Romans 3, or I'll just read it. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That was the point of the law to make you recognize your sinful nature. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. As Paul explains, everyone, everyone, even you who mistakenly Jews, who mistakenly believed that you could earn justification through the law, you could never do that. That was never going to come. That was never going to happen. What happened to the one person who did completely fulfill the law. He's crucified. Jesus Christ is the only one who completely, and he said that reason he came, he came to fulfill the law. So the one person that ever was able to completely obey and observe the law was crucified. Jesus said it over and over. We've been studying Luke in our adult Bible um, fellowship. And Jesus says it over and over, right? I mean, what's, what is one of the things about the Beatitudes? What's one of the things that Christ is saying? If He is pointing out, guys, do you not understand how holy and righteous God is and how far you've got to go? You can't do it. You have to have somebody who's going to give you grace at somebody being God. Right? Paul goes on. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If, what he's saying is, if you still need the law, we've just said that you can only be justified by Christ. You cannot be justified by law. Peter, you and I both know that. I'm reminding you of it. But your actions have been giving a mixed message to the Gentiles, and that's a problem. I'm reminding you of that. We know we can only be justified through Christ alone. And when you can only be justified through Christ alone and not by the law, if I then say you can only be justified by Christ alone, and then after you've done that, oh, by the way, let's go ahead and set up a whole law that you're going to have to follow and do in order to be saved... Am I not admitting that I was wrong to begin with and that it was the law who could have justified? That's what he's saying here. I can't rebuild something that I know would never accomplish what Christ accomplished on the cross. 
And that's the only way we're ever going to be justified is through that. I can't rebuild a law and tell you you need to do this plus all this other stuff that was there before because if I do that, then I'm saying, I think that was the way to have gone in the first place. And he goes on and talks about that. But if while being, if, while being, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, as Christ, and we've gone through that, so Mr. Sin, may it never be so, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law. So that I might live to God. What did we just read that the purpose of the law was? It was to give us the knowledge of our sin. What is the natural conclusion of sin? What are the wages of sin? Death. The law pointed. Paul knows what the law pointed to. Paul knows that the law is pointing to his death. Paul knows that the law was never going to save him. Paul knows that it's only Christ Jesus. It is only that gift. And it is only the reason, the only reason we have that gift is by the grace of God. That's the only way that Paul was going to be saved. He had, that law had to die. The thought because that was the whole thought process, right, with the law. You obey the law. You do all of its commandments faithfully, obediently. You will be, in their minds, you will be justified before God. If you have that mentality, then it's really hard for you to accept that really the only way that I'm going to ever be justified before God is by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was given to me because of nothing I did, and there's nothing I ever could do to ever earn the sacrifice that Christ did on my behalf. You can't have it both ways. You can't think that you can observe things and check off those boxes and earn your salvation and at the same time think, oh yeah, it's just Christ alone. You can't do it. That's what Paul's saying. I had to die to the law so that I may live for God. The only way I can live for God is recognizing the fact that it is God, not me. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live in God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. We just sang that song. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The recognition of the gift. The recognition of God's grace. And then he, I think he does an excellent job summing up in verse 21, but I'm going to read it differently. Christ died needlessly if righteousness comes from the law. I do not nullify, for God's grace would be nullified 
if that were true. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in the sea. If you can get justification before God because of observing the law, why did Christ need to die? And he's reminding Peter this. You know, I've tried to sit there and imagine when you're preparing a lesson, you try to come up with cool stories, things that kind of remind you, to give you an illustration of what's, what's happening. And really, one of the things that happened is, that came to my mind, and once something comes to your mind when you're preparing, it is so hard to get it back out of your mind. And so you sit there and you try to make it fit. And I don't know whether this is going to fit or not, but I'm hoping that for some of you it might ring. And I was thinking of Apollo 13. One of my favorite movies um, and I love Apollo 13. I love movies that have that are based off of true story. Now, I know they take lots of liberties, but I love Apollo 13, and I love the fact that it's based off of a true story. And if, for those of you all who have seen Apollo 13, remember, it was the one where something goes wrong on the ship as they were headed to the moon, and so all they could do is use the moon's gravity to sling them back, and they did everything they could just to get back to Earth safely. That's safe, safely. But while they're in the ship, if you remember... The astronauts, if y'all haven't seen the movie, you need to go see the movie. It's got Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, Bill Paxton, right? Some, some big names in there. It's a great movie. Opie directed it. Um, <laughs> so you've got them in the lunar module, and they stay in this lunar module. And the way I envisioned this, and the way I sat there and was thinking about this, and it came to my mind... Because they're working in that lunar module doing everything that they can just to stay alive. And they're communicating back to Houston, talking about all... They even have to sit there and make a... Remember, they have to make a square air filter fit in a round hole. Remember how they did that? So they're in this lunar module flying along this entire time, doing all this stuff just to try to stay alive. And then something happens in the movie, and they really don't make that big a deal about it. But it's what makes me think of this, and what makes me think of the law, and what makes me think of Christ. Something happens in that movie which was critical. Remember at one point in time, those astronauts have to leave the lunar module and go into the capsule that's actually going to take them through the Earth's atmosphere, right? Well, to me, the people who were living in the law never recognized that there was a need for a capsule. Imagine, if you will, those astronauts were in just the lunar module alone and they're hurtling towards Earth. What would happen? They would be killed. They would be destroyed as soon as it entered the atmosphere. Something else had to be connected to it. So then you have... So they go into the capsule and then they come through. We know that they live. Their parachutes open up. Everybody's happy. They get out on the aircraft carrier. Everybody's crying and wonderful. But just imagine, if you will, the illustration that these Jews that are in the lunar module do realize that they need that capsule, these Christian Jews. And when they get in that capsule, imagine, if you will, play along with me, they get in the capsule, there's other people already in there. There's Gentiles. They're already in the capsule. They go, wait a minute. We've been working our tails off over here 
trying to make everything right just so we can make it back here and we show up here and you're here? No, you've got to get back in the lunar module over there and you've got to do your fair share of it. That'd be crazy, right? That's the image that comes to my mind. At least when I was sitting there studying that. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law and Christ died needlessly. So how do we apply this to us? What does this mean to us? Right? We all, I say we all, I hope that we all believe that justification comes through Christ alone. But my guess is that many of us sit there and have and do either overtly or inadvertently put a Christ plus. When you think of someone else who might be seeking out first becoming, yeah, I think they've accepted Christ, but I haven't seen... Do we act differently when a group of people walk in? All of a sudden, are we doing anything in our lives? The actions, what Peter did here, his actions is what led others to hypocrisy. Are there actions that we're taking? And you know, let's, let's be clear about Peter. I love Peter. I know y'all do too. And part of the reason that we love Peter so much is, I don't know about you, but man, all of his mistakes I can relate to. Thank goodness that we have a record of Peter and his mistakes because of what he comes around to. Do we know? There were some scholars that actually think that this was a sign of a rift between Paul and Peter. That's why I'm, I'm pretty confident that's not the case. If you remember going back to Acts 15, I'll read this real quickly. at the council at Jerusalem. The apostles and elders came together to look into the matter, and there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. That's Peter talking there. There's no doubt that Peter and Paul, same message, different mission. Paul uses this opportunity though to show us that even the leaders of the church themselves can make a mistake. But what's wonderful about Peter is that Peter, even though he makes a mistake, we see how he responded. He went back to the principles of God. To Christ alone. Same message, different mission. Brian, why don't you lead us up in the last deal and then I'll close this in prayer.